won't you be my neighbor? I think this is a question that can change the world. It's revolutionary, just like that revolutionary Presbyterian in a sweater that knew that somehow living into this question could create a whole new world, a whole new neighborhood, if you will. And I think he got his idea, Mr. Rogers, that Presbyterian minister, from the Bible. Won't you be my neighbor? Let's break that down. First, what does it mean to be a neighbor? It sounds simple, but there's plenty of folks out there suggesting that the West has forgotten what that means. How do you be a neighbor? I like to suggest that neighborliness is an intimate knowing signified by reciprocity of love. Being a neighbor is an intimate knowing signified by reciprocity. Now think of someone that you have blessed and that person has also blessed you. It's not as many people as you would think, right? A lot of people that you know, but a lot of people that you have served. But that reciprocity is harder to come by. It's a struggle, especially with wealthy white individuals who often have no relationships with those who are in color and often no reciprocal relationships with those who are black or Latino or Asian. Chevy Chase, Maryland, at least, is 88% white, and so it may be difficult in the neighborhoods that we live in to build those sort of reciprocal relationships. But it's not even just Chevy Chase, right? The Public Religion Research Institute suggests that 75% of whites have no non-white friends at all. So we're not even able to practice that kind of reciprocal love. Love that's exchanged on equal footing, where support is shared, where bread is broken at table together. Because if you want to figure out who someone really cares about, you look at who they eat with, right? Won't you be my neighbor in a reciprocal relationship? It could mean eating with someone else, inviting them over to dinner, as well as joining them in their home, no matter how safe that neighborhood may be. Being a good neighbor means trusting that being in the home of another will be a blessing to you, that in some way you will see the presence of God there. Does anyone know a character from the Bible who got famous for going to the wrong parts of town and eating with the wrong kinds of people? Here, come on, Sunday school class. Everybody say it. Jesus, hallelujah. Being a neighbor means eating together. Being a neighbor means frequent, spontaneous interactions with people who could become your reciprocal partner in kingdom work. Like establishing a joint project together, just for the sake of getting to know someone. Because as that PBS Presbyterian reminds us, anyone can be your neighbor. Because, quote, 
there isn't anyone you couldn't love once you've heard their story. This is good news for the many of us who don't feel known, even if we are people of advantage and privilege and are white. There's anyone, there's no one that you could not love once you've heard their story. So that's what being a neighbor looks like. But why? Why should we be a good neighbor other than it's the nice thing to do? I believe that the biblical narrative can be summed up like this. In the beginning, God lived on our block. But we chose to walk away from God. And the rest of the story is a God trying to move into the neighborhood as we voraciously deny the reciprocity of God's love. God moved into the world and the people of Israel, a people that used God when they pleased and pushed God aside when it wasn't economically pragmatic. We worship a God who moved into the neighborhood in the person of Jesus Christ, living our lives, working our jobs, exhibiting the greatest of humility, by spending time with people that no one else would. Jesus swung wide the entrance to the gated communities with his wide open arms and says that everyone shall come to dine at my table. And to continue this community development work, the Holy Spirit moved in with the church and whispers to us these communal gatherings, get together. Eat bread. Tell the story of this neighborhood. Remember who you are and who belongs in our community. The end of the story, Revelation, is a story of a new city being set up where there are no more south sides and the other sides of the river, but one side, one city, where all the saints worship the Lamb, where every tongue and tribe is together, where they don't need light or lamp nor sun. They're not worried about utility companies shutting down their means of survival or whether the rent's going to be too expensive because God is there all in all. This is God with us, God moving into the neighborhood. And so, yes, the call of action comes at this part of the sermon, where we try and figure out what it is that we do. How can we be a good neighbor? That's nice, Mr. Rogers, but what are you going to do about it? We can fight for affordable housing, sure. We can read good books like Between the World and Me, which I highly recommend to you to help us understand the world a little bit better. Part of our task as the privileged is to try and understand from which we have come. And if we can understand our stories of living in the neighborhood, perhaps we can create better ones, better communities that aren't divided by how good the schools are and therefore how expensive the homes in the neighborhood are. I want to suggest we move forward by thinking through our stories as I share with you two different stories. First, mine. 
because I am the exemplar of when white privilege meets the American dream. You're looking at him right here. Figuring out my foundation has been unsettling, to say the least, as I've come to understand how it was built on structures that have advantaged me, disadvantaged my friends, challenging the comfort that my family is discovering. Why have I been blessed while others are fighting for their lives? How come my experience of the neighborhood is so different from the wealthier kids of one end of my street and the black kids at the other end? See, neither of my parents had a college education. My father worked as a blue-collar pipeline technician for a company that did pretty well in the last 10 of his 30 years with them. Their stock soared, and my dad believed that he was accumulating enough funds to have a sound retirement and to send me to college, the first time anyone of his roots had done so. So by several metrics, I was on the pipeline to fulfilling the American dream. And then two things happened simultaneously. First, my father's kidneys shut down, and he needed to be on a dialysis machine three times a week for three hours at a time, an exhausting process that provided his company good measure to fire him. The second thing is that this company he worked for, Enron, collapsed, leaving blue-collar employees penniless in its wake. For most of high school, my family lived off of Social Security and my mom's part-time job. Now, it would seem in this story that your protagonist was down and out, but American dream, right? My parents were determined that I would not end up in the same financial straits they found themselves in, so they guided me through the college application process, withdrew from their meager retirement funds just enough to satisfy the financial aid office at college, and I made it. Seven years of higher education later, I landed my first job as a pastor in Ohio, and now here I am, associate pastor at CCPC in D.C. Golly, how swell am I? Now let me tell you a different story. James and I were good friends from the day we started class together in kindergarten. We often played basketball, the hoop he set up in the street. We played baseball with friends on the block, often with a tennis ball. We spent time in each other's homes. We knew each other's families well. I sat next to his brother and his sister playing video games. James' family also had their share of struggles. His father lost his job and picked up drinking again. But James couldn't take part in high school extracurriculars and Instead, he had to pick up a part-time job at the local hardware chain, stocking shelves. Now, you would think this is the part where the story gets better, like for your protagonist, right? That Joe was able, like me, able to lift himself up by his own bootstraps. But we lost touch in high school. Whenever I tried to reach him, and whenever I wanted to spend time with him, he was working. His father came by on Christmas Day when I was 20, and I was home from school. And though the winter snow was blaring through our screen door, he asked if we had any small jobs that we could pay him to do, but we didn't. 
That was the last I heard from the family of my friend who lived around the corner. So why didn't James end up like me? It could be that he came from a low-income neighborhood, and that statistically college isn't in the books for him, but I came from the same neighborhood, and I've got a graduate degree from Princeton. James is just as intelligent as me. I often thought he was smarter. Just as good of a student in the same public education system. Both of our fathers lost their jobs, but he ended up needing to take a different path. What gives? Well, James is black. And while I can't get a hold of him, it's very possible that he's among the 44% of black men in the Chicagoland area who are unemployed, according to a study that came out this week from the Great Cities Institute at the University of Illinois in Chicago. 44% of my friends growing up, same neighborhood, same education. Remember, Joe and I, or James and I, had the same paths, same resources. But the part of my story that I didn't share with you on my American dream is that I'm white. While my parents moved to Chicago and detached themselves from their social networks of the East Coast and Iowa and Kansas, they found connection and strength in the local church. And that church showed my mom the path to get me into the honors program at school. See, I was privileged to have these relationships with white people who knew the system, who often were the creators of the system. Later, they taught us the timeline for college applications and how to navigate that devil of a thing called the FAFSA. Amen, parents? It's a privilege that I just measured out this week was probably worth about $100,000. Now, when I needed part-time work to supplement my income because my parents didn't have enough, I found that my friend groups ensured that next job opportunity. When I got to high school and made friends with some wealthier people, one of my friend's dad happened to be a dentist. And he happened to offer me an office assistant job. And then when I got to college, my friend's dad happened to own a construction company that I worked for for two summers. And I was privileged at that point to gather probably somewhere to the tune of $20,000. Then I'm aware none of my black friends from Joliet, despite also having church connections, none of them happened to end up with the same kinds of friends. As a white male with a beautiful wife and children, I snapped up a call in a mid-sized town in Ohio while I watched my female peers end up in smaller towns, even smaller churches. I've been privileged. It's been a privilege to work here, but I was scared when I got a call from you because housing here is an enormous financial obstacle, as you might have heard. We had no idea how we we're going to have a chance to live remotely close to the church. Then I was in D.C. for a conference last spring. I happened to stop into one of these high-rise luxury apartment buildings in downtown Silver Spring, which by Montgomery County law has 15% of the units set aside for those 
who make less than 80% of the median county income. So I stopped in to tell the manager that we qualified and could I get a tour? And he said, sure, but the list has hundreds of names. Another building told us thousands of names. And they're really hard to get. So we started going home and feeling hopeless. Well, will we have to cut? No preschool? Maybe change our shopping patterns? So you can imagine my dismay then when two weeks later we received a call offering us a two-bedroom unit in that building. We were ecstatic. We love living there. It's a privilege. A privilege that to this day I have to stop and ask myself, who didn't get that call? If the list is disproportionately people of color, was my name truly the next on that list? I am privileged, and a large part of the reason it seems is that I am a people-pleasing white guy who made friends with wealthy white guys at the right time of life. But here's the good news of the gospel, my friends, is that it doesn't have to be this way. It shouldn't be the people-pleasers that find their way into abundant life, but the people in whom God is well-pleased, which, as Mary reminds us at Christmas time, is the forlorn, the overlooked, those who live on the other side of the street and the other side of the river. Soon our choir will sing us a song from the New Presbyterian Hymnal, and its primary image is this opening line, For everyone born a place at the table. The good news is as simple as this. Because of Jesus, no matter where we come from, we get a seat. Our response to this grace should be our act of gratitude, of thinking through our stories, of acknowledging the advantages we have of stepping alongside those who have not shared in our advantage. To respond to God in gratitude. To know that God delights when we are creators of justice and joy. May joy be yours as you remember that God moves in your life, moved into your neighborhood. And may justice be made known in your life as you move into the neighborhood in rhythms of abundant life. And all God's people said, Amen.